Ladies and gentlemen, I'm in the company of Agnes Brown. And I want to apologize because my actual article recently said beautiful comments because Agnes is a dear friend and she has got a tea towel in her hand and I think she's going to slap me because I did make a mistake over the awards. I am so sorry, Agnes. Not at all, Peter. It could happen to any, anybody. Ah! <laughs> and that was a slap without the tea towel. <laughs> Did you ever think, all those years ago, it would be where it is today? Honestly, God, I'd love to be able to say how clever I am and that I had a plan. Uh, I had no plan. You know, my, my mother had a great saying, and um, she talked about success. And she said, Brendan, success is like disco music. Don't analyze it, just dance to it. And I'm dancing. And you are dancing very well. What I love, and the first time we met, I, I couldn't believe, first of all, your honesty, your, your frankness, but you're a very intelligent man and you've got an opinion. And we've done some great radio together over the years, some yeah. great radio. The most magical thing for me is your love of the family and the way the, the money stays in the family. Well, it's not, it's, and it's not just a question about the money. It is a question about that, you know, you know, the family that stay they say the family that prays together stays together. Well, the family that plays together also stays together. It's been, uh, again, an, another action, Peter. You know, it, when um, I started doing Mrs. Brown on the radio, a completely different cast, and then we went on stage and had a different cast. And then Fiona was the first. She came out of, um, she went to uh, movie college, movie and dramatic college, and she came out and she said, uh, I, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going, I said, Fiona, why don't you just take a year off? Give yourself a break. You've been in school since you were five years of age. You know, give yourself a break. So she took about two weeks and then eventually said, Dad, I have to do something. I said, I'll tell you what. Um, why don't you come in and play Maria in the uh, in Mrs. Brown? She said, there is no Maria in Mrs. Brown. I said, no, there will be now. So I, I wrote the part of Maria and Fiona came in and did it. And then... A real quirky twist of fate. I'll try and make this not too long, this story. But Eric, my youngest son, we get a call from the school to come down and see them. And we went down to see them. Jenny and I went down to see them. And they said, we think Eric needs to be assessed uh, by a child psychologist. And we went, oh, great. Well, if that's what you think he needs, then let's do it. And they were really relieved because they said, well, most parents react. No, no, my child is fine. I said, well, I'm sure that Eric is fine, but, you know, let me uh, let me say, if you think there's something wrong, you spend more time with him right now in school than we do. So we went to get him uh, assessed, and the assessor came out after assessing him and said, uh, he's classic dyslexic. I said, oh, right, okay. She said, he said he has an older brother, uh, Danny. I said, yeah. She said... It runs through the male side of the family, she said, usually. I suspect he may be uh, dyslexic. I said, well, no, I mean, he's done his exams. He's done his early exams, you know, his, his junior cert. And I said, he's not the top of the class, but he's not the bottom of the class. He, you know, he's, he's, he's somewhere in the middle. She said, I'd love to assess him. I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll get him in. She said, how about you? And I said, how about me? She said, have you been assessed? I said, no, no. I said, I'm fine. I'm fine. I said, I'm not dyslexic. I said, at this stage, I, I've written four plays. I've written three, book, three novels. 
I write a radio series, you know, so, no, I'm not. She said, well, you know, Michelangelo was dyslexic. You know, Einstein was dyslexic. So she said, do me a favor. And she opened the book and she said, read that page. She said, you want me to read it out loud? She said, no, no, just read it. So I'm reading it and I'm thinking, she's going to ask me questions on this. Big mistake for her because whatever I read, I remember every word. Not only will I tell her what's on the page, I'll tell her where the commas are, where the full stops are. Read the page and she said to me, did you read it once or twice? I said, just once. And she picked up a, a stopwatch and she said, you've got the reading speed of a 12-year-old. And she was right. I know I do read slow. I remember everything, but I am slow, a slow reader. So it turns out that I was dyslexic. So anyway, getting back to with uh, Danny. Brought Danny in to get, this, uh, to get him assessed. We're sitting in the waiting room and he said to me, Dad, I hope, I, I so hope I am dyslexic. I said, really? I said, why? He said, because if not, I'm just a stupid idiot. I said, well, I can tell you this, you're not stupid. That's for a start. You're, you're very smart. Went in, got assessed, classic dyslexic. So, went back to the school and I said to the school, look, he needs uh, a remedial teacher as well. And they said, oh, no, no, we, we, don't, we wouldn't do that. I said, no, I said, I'll pay. I'll pay for the teacher, but he needs it. No, 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 no. So they wouldn't entertain it. So we're coming back from that meeting with the school in the car. Danny's 16 at this stage. He's in secondary school. And he said to me, Dad, I, I can read enough to be able to read a script. That's all I wanted. He, all he ever wanted to be was an actor. I said, Danny, let me tell you something. Let me tell you how hard it is to be an actor. If you're an actor, you're going to spend most of your life looking for work. If you're in six plays in Ireland, an average play runs for three weeks. If you're in six plays in Ireland, that's a huge uh, body of work. But it's only 18 weeks' work. You know, you're going to... He said, I, I, I want to be an actor. I said, okay, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get headshots of you done. I'm going to give them out to every casting director I know. And you're going to go to an audition. You're going to feel what it's like to be rejected and to be put down, you know, time after time after time. Did that. He got everything he went for. He got every single film. He did six films before he was 17. So he said, I want to play Buster. So he came on board as Buster Brady. So then Fiona fell in love with, who was then my producer, Marty, who plays um, uh, my son Trevor in the show, and they got married. Danny fell in love with Amanda, who was, uh, plays Betty at the time. So now all of a sudden I've got me, me sister, me son-in-law, me daughter-in-law, me son, me daughter, and uh, on stage. Eric at this stage has now gone to movie school as well, but as he wanted to do production and, and direction. He directs the show. So, and we've six grandsons from, from, from all that. So we go to Australia. We go as a full family, including the six grandsons, along with two, you know, um, teachers and along with two, two nannies. But it's, it's a privilege to have what I have, but it's all by accident. It's not by design. Wow. Now, you mentioned him being uh, the director. Yeah. You are a very strong man. I mean, you know exactly what you want. Yeah. Does that give you any problems as your son directing? Uh, no, not, not necessarily. He, uh, Eric is... All children are different. All your, all your kids are different. And he's, he's the quietest of the three. Uh, Eric would be really quiet. So he, he, he comes along and says... Things like, um, 
<laughs> but you say, Eric, what, what's going to happen here is that's going to come through then and it's going to go through the window. And he goes, no. I go, what? He said, no. I said, well, uh, what, what's going to happen? And then he goes, we're going to do it that way, that way, and that way, and we're going to shoot it that way. And I go, oh, okay. He's very quiet, but he's very determined. He's very strong, but he's also got a great eye. And he had a great eye for a long, long time. The very first movie I directed myself was a movie called Sparrow's Trap. And because I was also in the movie, instead of me having to go to the studio to look at rushes, every night they would send the rushes to me uh, at home. And I'd watch the rushes at home and I'd go for, you know, that's the one. That's the, that's the one I'm going to, you know, that's the shot I'm going to keep. That's the shot I'm going to keep. And Eric was only four or five. And he'd sit in the arm of the chair as I'm doing it, and he started going, that's the one, Dad. That's the one. From that age, he'd, he'd agree to it. So he's a good eye. It works well. And uh, no, I don't have any conflicts with him. But at the end of the day, he also knows, yeah, well, I, I, I think it's a great idea, Eric, but we're doing it my way. Interesting. I'm with Brendan O'Carroll, Mrs. Brown herself. The boys are back uh, on tour. There's a Christmas special coming out. The other thing about you is you're an award-winning writer. You're an actor in your own right. Have you now concentrated more down towards Agnes, or are we going to see more of you through the writing? And I loved you in that play at the Royal Court all those years ago. Of course. That was my very first play, the course. And, and you know, funny, having the conversation with you through the night, I came back here and... Uh, Myself and Danny and, and Jenny and Paddy were here and we were having a cup of tea and we started to cast the course. Who would be putting that part? Who would be putting that part? And then by the end we were going, oh, I wouldn't mind doing that again. It'd be nice. The BBC have asked me to do the course as a series. Wow. Um, wow. Because it's a great story. Uh, they asked me that a long time ago um, and I, 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 haven't, I haven't even started writing uh, the course as a series. But it would make a nice series. It's a good story. And also... The reaction they had from people who came to see the play was, how come nobody's ever written a play about a course before? You know, everybody writes plays about this, that, that, and that. And every, but everybody has been on a course of some sort, even if it was a, you know, night school, you know, um, night schooling. Everybody's been on one, and nobody's ever written a play about it, especially a comedy. So I was, uh, I must tell you that I was actually on that course. Oh really? Oh yeah, I, I went. Know to, that. Oh yeah, to sell insurance, and what they did was, there was so little money made off a of policy that to, to to make any money at all, you had to sell a lot of policies, and they had an American system, which they called the system, and which was every time you give the sales talk five times, you'll sell once, but you were getting something like three quid off a of policy, so. To get a decent living, you had to do a hundred calls a week to get a decent uh, living out of it. So, in order, they also knew that the hardest thing for a salesman is the first call. That's the very hardest thing, and it's door to door. So, they, uh, parallel to training about insurance, they give you a positive mental attitude course, and that's what this is based on: the PMA course. Six complete losers taking a PMA course, and. Um, and that you know that, that the positivity in life if you look at it if you look at life positive it changed me it changed me an awful lot that course honest to god because you do look at life uh, more positive i don't know whether it was a glass half full or half empty guy before that but after that 
I realized that positivity is the way forward. A positive mental attitude just makes such a difference. And it's even better if you pass it on. So that's what the play was about, was, was, about, was about passing on that positive mental attitude. And it worked because one of the richest men in Ireland, um, uh, Dermot Desmond, huge, huge, huge billionaire, I get a message from him after running it in Dublin for six weeks or whatever, and it sold out in Dublin for six weeks. I get a message from his office, could I come and see him? So I went to see him and arrived in his office in luxurious offices, all walnut and crystal. It's beautiful, beautiful office in the Irish Financial Services Centre. And he comes in and he's telling me about his life and he was, you know, and he said something to me that I never forgot. He said to me, I can't make anything. I can't make a sh- I can't make a recipe. I can't put a sh- make a shelf. All I can do is make money. I'm good at making money. I can make money out of money, but I can't do anything else. And I went, oh, that's terribly sad. <laughs> so as he's going along, I'm thinking, I wonder does he want me to invest? He thinks I have more money than I have. He must do. So at the end of it, I said, we had a cup of coffee, and I said, look, I, I better go. And he said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I said. What was I here for, Jeremy? Oh, hold on a second. He said, oh, wait. And he wrote me a check for 50 grand. And he handed me the check. And I said, what's this for? He said, I know. He said, I was at the play. I saw people coming out, elated, just ready to take on the world after that play. And I said, oh, that's good. He said, and I know you couldn't afford to take that play to the smaller theatres around the country. So I want you to put that into the fund and take it to the smaller theatres because people need to see this. People need to be more positive. And that's what I did. What a beautiful story. Yeah, lovely man. Oh my word. That's incredible. So he was giving you 50 grand to help other people through your play. So that they would, that we could, we would afford to at least 10 venues around the country that we wouldn't normally do because they wouldn't, the capacity wouldn't pay the bills. So, it, 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 and it worked. And we took it to, you know, smaller places, Athlone, um, Tralee, villages. Yeah, amazing. You are a family man. We mentioned that at the beginning. Do you have any time with your lovely wife alone? Or is the whole of your life around the family? No, we're, we're very... And golf. <laughs> we're very lucky. First of all, I'm very lucky that Jenny also plays golf. So, we spend a lot of time at the golf course together. Um, but no, it's, it's a peculiar the way it works. Because we spend so much time when we're working together, we barely see each other when we're not working together. Um, we see each other at Christmas, obviously, um, and the summer holidays. Where I live, um, Danny is, where I live in Florida, Danny has a house next door, Eric has a house next door to that, Fiona has a house next door to that. So they come out um, for part of the summer, the kids' summer holidays, uh, so we have them out there. But other than that, no, we don't live in each other's ear. And I have to tell you, where I know COVID lockup affected a lot of people, it really did, you know, not being able to have, uh, and even couples that we knew have parted since, since that, you know, they just couldn't get on together, spending so much time together. It was the opposite for us. I, I fell in love all over again, and she fell in love all over again. It was, it was fantastic with just the two of us. Um, so no, it doesn't affect, it doesn't affect us uh, off stage because we don't spend, we don't live in each other's ear. You know, Danny understands, and I, I brought the kids up to understand 
you know, when you marry and you have your kids, they become your first family. I'm now your second family. I'm not your first family. They're your first family. Look after them and we'll always be here. And that's that's the way we, 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 we that's the way we rock. Baby. You were t- talking about falling in love. When did you fall in love with uh, America? Uh, I went out in 1994. I, I, I'd been gigging in America. I'd been gigging in Boston and Baltimore and uh, New York, um, up as far as Toronto, New Jersey. I'd been doing stand-up uh, around those areas. I would go over and do maybe, you know, six weeks there, only on a holiday visa, so I had to keep my head low. Um, and I, I would work at some of the comedy clubs there. And I came back. Sorry, I was in New York. And um, doing some comedy, and I got a call from RTE, Irish Television, and it was 1994, and the head, and it wasn't the head of Light Entertainment, which I was expecting. They said, just hold on, we have Tim O'Connor out for you, the head of sport. No one, well, <laughs> so he got on. And he said, how are you, Brendan? He said, look, he said, I'm, I'm looking for somebody to do some colour pieces for me um, during the World Cup. Ireland had qualified for the World Cup. He said they're going to be based in Orlando. And he said, you'll be out there for eight weeks. And we'll, uh, we'll have a, a rental car. You'll have per diem. You'll be looked after for everything. You have to stay with the team. You have to fly with the team. And, and it really was one of those cases of when he said, okay, let's talk about money. I'm thinking, I hope he doesn't want too much for this. And as it turned out, it was great money he gave me. And uh, so I went out. And what he wanted me to do was a three-minute piece to camera every second day which I could do in my sleep. So I got bored. So I got bored and I did two things when I was out there. First of all, I wrote a book over those, um, it turned out to be eight weeks. Over those eight weeks, I wrote a book, The Mammy, which is the first book about Mrs. Brown. And then I used to get into the rental car and go out and get lost. Just deliberately drive anywhere. And I just fell in love with Florida. I just thought, my God, this place is beautiful. Um, so, we started going back, Jenny and I started going back maybe once or twice a year. And then I got a touch wood, thank God. I got a massive book deal from Penguin in New, in, in America and um, who wanted two books off me, which I subsequently wrote. And Sorry about that. And Don't they, uh, when I got the, the advance, um, Jenny said, let's not bring it home. Let's, let's leave it here. Let's put it. We, we're coming out here to, to Orlando, giving all our money to Mickey Mouse. And we were, we stayed in a Disney hotel. We'd go to Disneyland, we, you know, so yeah, so we went down to Orlando and we started looking around. We bought our first house there. That was 20, 24 years ago. Uh, and then we moved there full time, maybe about three years later. We just went, you know, because what happened was we kept going out, kept going out. We were going out a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And then, Honestly, on one night we arrived late and we got in and put the cases down and switched the lights on and put the kettle on and Jenny said, oh, it's good to be home. Wow. And I went, yeah, you're right, it is good to be home. And uh, it's be- it-, it became home. That's great. By the way, please light a cigarette because I oh, know you very much. you're passionate about uh, your smoking and we had the most incredible discussion <laughs> years did. ago when we Dublin... Did became smoke-free and England was going to follow. That's right. And you made your argument loud and clear. Well, I just, you know, everything you do that you think is good, 
has sometimes negative consequences. And they didn't see the consequences that were coming up. So, okay, they banned smoking. So what took its place? Vaping. More people vape now than smoke. People who never smoked vape. Because what happens, what's happened is, I don't know, it's, I can't speak for Liverpool, I can only speak for Orlando or Dublin. The best place, if you're in a pub, the best place to be is out with the smoke spot. That's where the fun is. Yep. And people vape and they come out and they, to the smoke spot and vape out there. And so vaping is now, so the next thing is going to be, they're going to have to ban vaping. And they've already banned menthol cigarettes now, that's the latest thing. No mint cigarettes. I mean, you're absolutely right. People who buy consulate cigarettes or, or Marlboro and uh, menthol, they only buy them for the mint taste. You know, no, they don't. They buy them because they smoke. And so I think they went about it. Their intentions were good, but I think they went about it entirely the wrong way. What they should have done was they should have made places have a smoking section, but also install the best possible ventilating system. Like they do at the um, airports. Like the airports do, you have always got a smoking room. I mean, in Atlanta, on every at every terminal, you've got a smoking room, but it's well, well ventilated, and it's and it keeps uh, it keeps the smoke within the spot. Because at the end of the day, smokers are going to smoke. Now, I'm, I don't doubt. As I said, their intentions were really, really good, and the idea of of it was that you know, monkey see, monkey do. If kids are growing up seeing adults smoking, they will eventually take on a cigarette and take on a smoke. And I understand that, and I do get that. But now it's with vapes. You've got kids vaping, you know, because it tastes like, you know, cucumber, or it tastes like pineapple, or it tastes... So it's it's just gone crazy. What I think what they're going to have to do is, overall, you know, I, I made the argument that, you know, if you're going to ban smoking, you have to ban drinking. For exactly the same reason, you know, and yet I know that nobody I know who smokes too much goes home and beats their wife. Nobody I know who smokes too much drives a car erratically. Yet they won't ban drink. And drink is probably the biggest curse of the world, not just these islands, of the world. You know, the amount of people who die through drunken driving every year is ridiculous. The amount of people who are in in rehab through alcoholism is ridiculous but there's no attempt it's not even you know well we're not going to let them advertise on the tv oh well big deal you know you can still advertise in a bus you can still advertise on, 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 a, on a, a, a poster so that doesn't happen they're they're nibbling away at a problem that wasn't a problem before they made it a problem yeah. so if you want clean air which we do you encourage people to buy electric cars which we are doing. You, you subsidize those cars, which they I know they do in Ireland, and they certainly do in America. I don't know if they do it in the UK. But they subsidize those cars so that you will change to electric, to have clearer air. That's a technology thing. The technology still exists to be able to have a smoking area in a pub that has the, the proper ventilation. It's hap- what's happened is, where, I used, where Jenny and I used to go out to restaurants, and sit, have a meal, and then sit for the night chatting. We don't do that now. Food now is in a restaurant is just fuel. We may as well go to McDonald's. Just go in, have the food, and go. The 
worst thing for smoking for me as a working comic in the social clubs when smoking stopped all of a sudden you smelt the toilets <laughs> yeah that's right you could smell the toilets as well and i do understand you know the secondhand smoke argument i absolutely understand that but again you know at the time that the, the ban was being considered the house of lords had the independent research done and they found that something like a minuscule amount of people were affected by secondhand smoke and now don't get me wrong secondhand smoke can be bothersome it can be you know and <laughs> um, the americans love to do that you know if you're standing outside so we're having a oh, cigarette really? uh, the americans will walk past you <laughs> I always go, watch that cough. I, I smoke and I don't cough like that. <laughs> but, uh, no, I do understand that with secondhand smoke, but it's a minuscule amount. And again, proper ventilation, there should be no problem whatsoever. I'm talking to Brendan O'Carroll. You love a challenge. I'm now a promoter. I'm a rich promoter and I'll pay you whatever you want. But I want Brendan O'Carroll doing a one-man show in arenas. How would you feel about that? You wear stand-up, the show is about stand-up. My, my blood is stand-up. It's in my blood. Stand-up is in my blood. Um, well, if you were doing arenas, it wouldn't be for artistic reasons. You'd be doing it for the money. Um, and I have been asked to do it. Uh, I've been asked many times to do a stand-up tour. Uh, particularly in Australia. Australia, they, they would love me to do a stand-up tour. But I'm just enjoying this, you know? I really am enjoying it. And, and um, you have to ask yourself, when is enough enough? It, it, it's not about money for me. And I, I know, you know... No, it's not about money. But everybody, who, but everybody who has yeah. money says that, yeah. you know. Uh, it's easy to say it when you're, when, you're, when you're quite comfortable. And we are quite comfortable. Um, but it's, it was never about the money. It was always about... That adrenaline, that, that, the fear in stand-up. You've done stand-up, you know what it's like. That fear you get just before you go on. You know, people say, you still get butterflies. Yeah, of course I do, even now. Doing Mrs. Brown, I get butterflies. The best you can hope for is to get them all, you know, flying in the one direction. If you can do that, you're okay. But you still get butterflies, you still get nervous. Um, I don't know what it is. is. Is it the adrenaline rush that you're addicted to? But walking out and doing stand-up man it's just it's just amazing because it's just you the mic and the audience would you lose all that round you would that be are they your crutch would that frighten you no it, you know it's funny after the uh, after the course and um, when i did sparrow's trap and i did, I, I did a movie sparrow's trap and i financed it myself and i lost everything i lost absolutely everything uh, in, in doing it and i went back in the road and uh, to do stand-up to try and get some cash in and um danny uh, did sound booty did lights pepsi did roadie jenny sold merchandise and um, so no, the team were still there and the family were still involved but um you know i i always i used to, I, in the early days when we did mrs brown the early days i always did about two months of stand-up usually around ireland just to just to get that that vibe back again but i found now that i've able to been able to mold mrs brown into such a way 
that when people come to this show, if the people came to the show twice in one week, they wouldn't see the same show. It's different because I like to play. I like I like to do stand-up. Like the stand-up. Yeah, I like, like to do stand-up. Basically, yeah. that's it. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd consider it, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be top of my list. It's Pete Price. It's uh, Brendan, and here's the question everyone will want me to ask. <laughs> everyone listening will want me to ask is how much of those ad libs are ad libs? Now I know when I do panto in big theatres, we had to train to do those ad libs. Yeah. You, you know what I'm saying about that. Yeah, no, I do. Yeah. yeah. So how much of that is? They say ad-libs? some of the best ad libs are well rehearsed. Yeah. 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 But when I see you, well, there's two cast members in particular and your missus who do lose it now i know when they're losing it losing it and i know i think when sometimes they're when you were at the show on wednesday night yeah sensational any any ad libs you saw on wednesday night they weren't aware of none at all none at all that speech at the end (laughs) mental speech at the end they weren't aware of it (laughs) and it drives jenny crazy because she keeps going, who are you going to insult now? Who are you going to insult next, for God's sake? Um, even even last night, um, when I said, and his next door neighbour, he was Indian. So I went in, and Jenny's going, oh my God, what's he going to say? And I said, and tried to ingratiate myself with the man. I said, I love cricket. Uh, I think curry is a marvellous dish. And I, I, oh, I think Mumbai is a beautiful city. You know, to ingratiate myself. And he just said, how? <laughs> <laughs> I can see her, I can see her face completely relaxing. She just went, "Oh my God!" <laughs> Mrs. Brown, Agnes is hugely successful, and you are phenomenally successful and loved by so many. But also, it's Marmite. A lot don't. How do you feel about that? You know, um, my attitude immediate attitude is fuck them you know the door swings both ways and i hate that show on the telly and then change the channel that's what the remote control is for that's the my initial reaction again my mother used to always say you know don't be listening to the people there'll always be a donkey telling the racehorse how he should have run the race (laughs) and so (laughs) I, i i keep that in mind but then you have to understand sometimes they're right Sometimes you read a critic and you go, actually, he's right, I could do better there. I could, I could snip that. That is a bit long, that is a bit short. You know, and so you do get some of the critics who, who are right. They're, you know, uh, and you don't discount them all. And you certainly don't discount them all. I don't do any social media. I don't do Facebook. I don't do Twitter, Instagram, Instacart, whatever the hell it is. I don't do any social media. And... Um, and my life is better for it. I swear to God. Danny comes to me sometimes because Danny is mad at the social media. Because we've got boys from the black, boys from the black stuff. Mrs. That's Brown. what I went to see last night. Mrs. Brown's boys. We've yeah. got that. Yeah, that. Yeah, and but that's, but that's run by the office. Yeah, the office right. runs that. Right. And uh, the Dublin office runs that. <laughs> and then we have an American version, and the American office runs that. But. Um, Danny has his own one and he'd come to me and say Dad you know what they said How they're really raving about this show Dan I don't want to know I really don't want to know so I don't even have to say that to him anymore he doesn't bother he knows I really don't yeah, want to yeah. know yeah. Um, I remember about it was only about halfway through the first series of Mrs Brown on TV 
and let, we start getting fan mail. Letters were coming into BBC. So, open them, and then in the middle of those, there was about two or three letters from people who said, "My son's autistic," and I heard him laugh for the first time, or I heard him laugh in context for the first time, and my son is very shy. My son gets bullied in school, but he comes home and watches Mrs. Brown, and he he he, he get, you know, all of those things that went from three letters to by the end of the series we had a thousand letters from people mostly um, uh, from uh, people who had autistic children so what we did was we put money into um, developing there was a girl for instance in Trinity College who was developing trying to develop a link between physical comedy Charlie Chaplin you know uh, Keaton and Mrs. Brown and autism how they react to that because some a lot of autistic kids aren't responsive at all but when they do see something they 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 respond to it so we did that and then we put money into uh, disney where where we're putting on we're putting uh, together some dvds for autistic children and um, which my two of my grandchildren are autistic and actually if you listen to them talking they both have american accents even though they live in dublin <laughs> because the stuff that they're looking at yeah, yeah. from the digital is all is, is all in american so when you when you get one of those letters you just go i don't give a fuck what people say i don't care what people say that will do me people who said you know that the repeats of mrs brown got them through COVID. people who say my mother in her last days she, we used to sit around the hospital bed and watch Mrs. Brown and she would laugh. You know, she's passed now, but we, we'll never forget that. Why would you bother listening to anybody else? Absolutely. Is Agnes going to grow old gracefully? Yeah, I, I, I deliberately wrote a part I can grow into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, anybody who's read The Granny, uh, there's, there's four Mrs. Brown books. And the last of them is The Granny. Anybody who's read the granny will know, no, she doesn't go on forever. But uh, TV was, you know, with the BBC, I signed on to do um, three years, 18 episodes. I said I'd do three years, three years of it. And they were delighted with that. We, when we do these Christmas specials, we'd have done 49 episodes. That's a bit more than 18 that we were, than we were expecting, than I was expecting. Um, but my feeling on it always was, look, as long as the BBC keep wanting it, I'll keep writing it. Uh, but the time will come when they go, we want to put something else on Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. And that's the way the business is, as you know. It's somebody else's turn. Great, we'll just, we'll just move away gracefully and we'll carry on touring and doing what we... I mean, touring is what I love. You know, I, don't get me wrong. It's great to have TV, but I don't love it. And touring is what I love. I love waking up in Liverpool today, and then tomorrow being in Cardiff, and then the following week being in Australia, and then the following week being in Romania. I love travel, and so I love touring. So TV was, it'll go on as long as the BBC wanted to go on. And, and you know, I've asked them to be honest with me, let me know. You know, in March, no, we're not going to run them Christmas. And then I can go, well, then we won't do them. We call it a day at that. And uh, 
But other than that, I'm going to keep going as long as you keep going. I'd love, I'd love to do a Tommy Cooper, you know. I want to be dragged out off the stage from under the curtain and have everybody laugh and thinking, oh, Mrs. Brown's gas, she's at the fainting there. <laughs> and think it was part of the show. I was delighted to um, go to a couple of the recordings of your TV. What I love, and to me one of the most exciting things you did with the TV, was going into the audience. Mm. Was Yeah, you were on the set, but it was there. You brought the cameraman in. You, you revolutionised comedy <laughs> in TV, and it, it worked really well. Um, was that a big job to get that done? Yeah, it was a big yeah. discussion. It was a big discussion with the BBC at the time. Um, Steve McCrum was the uh, was the producer at the time, and, and and he was the one that was driving Mrs. Brown to TV. And I said to him, I said, I said, look, I said, if we if there's a, a mess up or a mistake, I said, I'll I'll, I'll do something com comedic with it. Um, just let's leave it in. He said, oh, I don't know. I said, really, let's leave it in. And he said, Brendan, he said, and this is a direct quote, I suspect that the, the sitcom format was invented for a reason. And I said, I know, yeah, but let's break it. Let's break the reason. And he said, oh, I, 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 really, I really don't know. I said, come on. I said, look, and the very first episode, at one stage, uh, she's talking to her son, Dermot, and he's saying, uh, 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 like literally 10 minutes into it, and Dermot said, oh, mommy, just leave me alone. And I just goes, but Dermot, I'm, I'm your mother. And the audience all went, oh. And I went, it's a man in a fucking dress, you know that, you know? And they just fell around the blade happened. And we left it in. And that was the first line. Very that first was the one. first one. Very first one. Wow. And the second one was in that same series. At one stage, uh, call, we were sitting in the bar and I called for Mrs. Brown to light up a cigarette in the bar. And I went in, no cigarettes. So I said, I know what they are. I said, hang on. And I got up and I walked Stop through it. the studio, all the way down to the sitting room, got the cigarettes, came back and went, now, what were you saying? And we left it in. And we left it in. And there's a reason why things like it will be all right in the night are successful. It's because people want to see just, just a little bit behind the screen. Yeah. And, uh, and hopefully we showed them that. We showed them a little bit behind the screen. Agnes Brown, Brendan, you and your family bring so much joy. Your writing, your books, all those Hundreds of awards. It's just <laughs> been a joy. Thank you so much for talking to me. Well, I don't think a lot of people um, certainly know this, but my first radio interview in the UK was with you. I was as nervous as hell. I mean, I was so, so nervous. Um, and as you know, I'm a hugger anyway. But when we arrived up to the tower um, and we walked into the studio, you stood up and you gave me a hug. All the nervousness just went away. And I think we sat and just had a chat. And any interview I've had with you, even this, it's kind of like a chat. It's a pity you don't smoke. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting P-Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe, it's free.